CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you all with us for a special edition of Political Rewind today. As we said in the uh, very opening of the show, we're going to talk about the opioid crisis in Georgia. We all hear about the opioid crisis. We think we know uh, something about it, but the experts we've assembled today are going to really help us understand it, what the state's doing about it, how we get it under control, and much more uh, in the uh, hour that we have coming up. Before we get to that, Kevin Riley. Editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we're glad you're here. It's your Tuesday when we are always glad to welcome you. Um, let's very quickly, because we know we have a big political uh, listenership out there, make the point that everything we've been saying on Political Rewind for probably the last two weeks, uh, that Stacey Abrams would not choose to run for the United States Senate, turned out to be true, not because we're prescient, but because most people thought that was not the race she was going to make. Now we know it's not. Right. And I, yeah, it's no surprise, but um, she was being courted pretty seriously. And you just wonder uh, what will happen now in terms of her stature in the Democratic Party. I mean, remember, she was asked to give the Democratic response to the State of the Union. Yeah, my, my guess about this is she, whether she ran for Senate, she certainly has disappointed Senator Schumer. He was really courting her heavily, but it still looks great for the National Democratic Party, does it not, to have a Stacey Abrams out there uh, talking about democratic ideals and principles, whether she runs for the Senate or not. Yeah, I think you're right about that. But at some point, uh, I mean, we'll have to see what she does, yeah. of course. But at some point, the all of the political races that will come into focus in 2020, including the presidential race, she could get lost in all that noise if she isn't in a very prominent and important race herself. GP radio reporter Stephen Fowler was one of the first people to talk to her about her decision. He interviewed her late last night. Let's just listen to a few, few seconds of what she had to tell them. Uh, particularly the choices being made by David Perdue and Donald Trump are harming our state, they're harming our people. And my responsibility is to be a public voice uh, who's speaking up for those who are being harmed and left out, but also to be an active participant in how we shape the future of our country. I, I think that's the case for every person, but I know that my platform and my opportunity is to lift up issues that sometimes go unnoticed or or more muted than they should be. And so where I sit in is that I will always center Georgia and center Georgians. Kevin, Stacey Abrams, we were going to we will talk about this in much more depth on tomorrow's political rewind. Greg Bluestein, uh, your AGC reporter who's been following Stacey Abrams through her gubernatorial bid, waiting to see what she does on the Senate race, will be with us. And so we'll have a deeper conversation about next steps on tomorrow's show. Right. And it's something that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. I think you're probably right. <laughs> the opioid crisis is a national emergency. I don't think there's any question about that. And I suspect that the panel that we've assembled here today will confirm that as we talk. They are all experts in the field. And because they're new voices to many of you out there, to most of our listening audience, just to get you thinking about whose voice belongs to whom as you listen on the radio. Of course, if you're watching on Facebook Live, more power to you. You can see everybody as we uh, go through this conversation. But I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and just very briefly tell us what their role is, their professional role, and how they're involved in this issue. Cassandra, why don't I start with you? Oh, yes. Thanks, Bill, for having me. Um, I'm Cassandra Price. I'm the director for the Office of Addictive Diseases with the Georgia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. And my role uh, at the agency is to provide um, oversight of treatment and recovery services for the state of Georgia. Um, and I serve um, as the single state uh, authority on that. Uh, I'm a certified addiction counselor with an MBA in project management, and I'm also the um, president of NASDAQ, the National Association of State Alcohol and Drug Directors. Neil? 
Uh, I'm Neil Campbell. I'm the executive director of the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. We do advocacy, education and training and peer recovery support services. And I'm also a woman in long-term recovery. And for me, that means it's been 29 years since I've had uh, my last drink or illegal drug. And I talk about my recovery because many things, among all the things that we do, we are also here to reduce stigma that's often associated with addiction. And your organization is a 501c3, you're a nonprofit? That's or correct. Are you not quasi-governmental in any way? No, we're nonprofit. Okay, just wanted to make sure. And we have two, not one, but two <laughs> Kennesaw State representatives uh, with us today. Maybe one of the reasons for that is Morgan Carter, the producer of this show, one of our terrific interns this year, just got her master's degree from Kennesaw State University last week, and we have to give her a shout out, congratulate her on that, as we introduce our two Kennesaw State University uh, guests today. Teresa? Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, Teresa Johnston, I'm the executive director of the Center for Young Adult Addiction and Recovery at Kennesaw State University, and shout out to Morgan, who has done um, <laughs> incredible work uh, at the university. Yeah. Um, our role at the university is to um, help advocate for students in recovery, support those students in recovery, and then we have a larger role in research and programming on the college campus and nationally as well. Hi, I'm Austin Brown. Um, I am the Associate Director uh, at the Center for Young Adult Addiction and Recovery. I'm a social worker by training, and uh, my main function at the center is to uh, do inward-facing research for uh, programming aspects and then um, uh, peer-reviewed publications for external um, uh, review um, on recovery science. There are a lot of statistics that we could talk about which helps define this problem. Uh, but let me start with, with one. Uh, Neil, let me ask you about this first, and then please, all of you, weigh in. Uh, from 2010 to 2017, the number of opioid-involved overdose deaths in Georgia increased by 245%, up from 426 to 1,043 deaths, yeah? That's right. We're in the midst of a crisis. If you do the math on that, it's between three and four Georgians a day are dying of opiate overdose. And it often makes us just take a step back and go, why aren't we doing more? Because that's a lot. And we saw this coming from 2009. Um, I will say at that time, the Georgia legislature cut treatment capacity to the tune of close to 30%. And that was the wrong way to go. So now we're starting to see more resources on the federal level and the state level be dedicated toward this issue. So hopefully we'll start seeing that curve bend back down. Yeah, I want to talk about the efforts in the legislature and in Congress to deal with the crisis. And we'll get to that at a, a later point in the show. But what are they overdosing on these days? What is, it, what is the drug of choice that is, or what are the drugs of choice that are creating this problem? Who wants to grab that one? Well, we see heroin uh, for one, and then fentanyl and carfentanyl uh, laced um, in certain substances as well. And so while um, some of these um, folks are using substances, they're also not aware of some of the substances that are laced in uh, the other um, properties. That was Teresa Johnson from, from Kennesaw State. And I want to follow up because we were talking a little bit about this off the air, right? So when, when a lot of average people hear heroin, you know, I think that their perception of how that happens kind of goes back to things they've seen in the movies or what a classic and um, stereotypical heroin addict is like. And in fact, that's not what's going on. That's not really the kind of person who ends up dead as a result of heroin or ends up addicted to heroin because of how this crisis has unfolded. So could, I mean, for anyone, could you sort of explain, like, who is that person addicted to heroin and how do they end up there? Well, it's anyone, right? Any age, any demographic, any race, any color, any religious background. Um, and part of what we see is also the prescription pill um, introduction of Oxycontin and drugs of that nature that have are opiate-based and synthetic. Um, but if you take, uh, think about the uh, Netflix show, The Wire, right? So that's people's perspective of what um, a socioeconomic class of people who use heroin look like, right? And, and that's the stigma, and that's the things that, that we're trying to educate about. But really, it can be anybody today because of the expansion on uh, direct access to prescription pills. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Cassandra, 
the the path to heroin, at least if you are not the demographic that we traditionally used to think of as being heroin addicts, although I'm not sure that stereotype was ever correct in the first place, um, is the path first likely to have been opioid painkillers that got someone hooked and eventually they turned to heroin for whatever reason? Well, I mean, first of all, I would I would go back to say that, you know, heroin's been a long, around a long time yeah. and it never went away. So yeah. let's just let's put that out there as a, as a kind of a baseline. And I think there was a definite um, uh, bridge to the prescription drug use uh, and abuse over prescribing that happened uh, across the nation. Um, and, and let me just point out, too, that this opioid crisis didn't happen overnight. This happened over a long amount of time. Uh, and so people got addicted to uh, pain relievers, uh, opioids, thinking that was the, the way to go. Um, and then as as we cracked down on prescribing and we, we've changed, you know, we've got a PDMP in place, which is the prescription drug monitoring program, that people switch to heroin when they can't get pain medication. Uh, and then what's really triggered this overdose crisis is that in, induction of fentanyl, which uh, uh, Teresa mentioned, and that is a highly uh, a, a substance that is, increases the overdose potential. And so you see that whole path and that trajectory that has happened over a, a course of more than 10 years. Can I ask a very fundamental question? I think everybody knows what heroin is. I think everybody knows what various opioids uh, uh, for pain relief are. We know that category drugs, probably many of us have been prescribed those drugs by no one else, a dentist, if we had dental surgery. Um, I don't really know what fentanyl is, Kevin, and, and, I, and I don't really understand, although I hear this all the time, how incredibly dangerous fentanyl is. Uh, yes. Austin, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, fentanyl is a synthetic uh, opioid. Uh, we have several uh, classes of opioids, um, but fentanyl being a particularly powerful one. Um, and it's the one. Some of the advantages of why it's showing up in the market is that it's easy to ship. It's small. It's uh, able to be um, uh, put into other things that um, so counterfeit pills, things like that. Um, and and the the ease with which it's able to be transported across international borders and things like that uh, make it a popular choice for um, distribution along the black market. And it's 100 times stronger than most opiates that you can get. My personal uh, introduction to fentanyl was when my mother was dying of cancer and had a fentanyl patch. And to watch the difference, I mean, I, I remember looking at her thinking, that's what this is for. She was finally comfortable. And being in so much cancer pain, I mean, that's that's what it's for. And so when you misuse that or you have, like Austin was saying, you have it being transported across lines and it's coming from China, it's coming from India. You don't know what's in this stuff. It's it becomes it's not regulated from other countries as it comes across our border. The patch that my mom had was very regulated. We knew what it was. We knew when to put it on to take it off. The stuff that's coming across the border is no one knows what. How, how much it is. It's really, really dangerous. Kevin, I want to just, before I turn it over to you, uh, Robert Jimison just sent me a note saying two milligrams of fentanyl is considered enough to be a lethal amount mm -hmm. in most adults. Two milligrams. Right. It, it's amazing. I mean, we have written a lot about this, Neil, and I kind of wanted to pick up on this. So, I mean, part of what happened, what got the country going on opioids was a theory of pain management, pain control, and a marketing message that said people couldn't get addicted to them or wouldn't get addicted to them. Right. And so I, I don't know who wants to pick up on that, but we've actually written stories that say one of the, the, the more serious culprits in the current crisis are doctors who continue to pres prescribe. I know a lot of moves have been made to stop that, but it's still an issue, I think, yeah. right? I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, there is some, you know, culpability or responsibility from a physician standpoint, but I do not think it is the only um, issue. Right. I mean, absolutely, there was, a, you know, a paper written, a study written, I think it's in the book you mentioned earlier, Kevin, when we were talking, uh, that talked about, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking opioids for, you know, chronic or short-term pain, and we found out that's not true, but 
There's also a greater responsibility on us as consumers, as us as the public, to educate ourselves about what we're putting in our bodies and not looking for a pill to solve our pain. And so there's education efforts about prevention and understanding the consequences of these medications, looking for alternatives to pain, physical therapy, um, and other options. And so I think there's a lot of responsibility. And Cassandra, I know that you're right about that, but that's also a change in philosophy, Absolutely. right? I mean, medicine had gotten to the point where pain was, what was it, they call it the fifth vital Sign or yes, I, absolutely. And, and 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 they would ask people what their you know where they were on a scale of one to ten, and the theory became people shouldn't have to suffer through pain, right? I mean that's part of what happened, right? And that you know I I want to push back on Cassandra just a little bit because like we have that kind of <laughs> we, we do that a lot, but I would say <laughs> that the decision around and the responsibility of physicians and pharmaceutical companies is resting in the courts now. We're starting to see that because it has been so abused. And the, you know, it's sort of that demand reduction versus interdiction. It's like that's sort of the classic tension in substance use. It's how much do you monitor what's coming in or what's being prescribed versus how do we get people to get used to having a certain amount of pain that's okay. But the style of marketing of drugs generally, and in particular uh, pain medicine, has changed, right? I mean, that played a part. Yeah, and the the United States consumes uh, the majority of, of of medication in this area, and that's um, you know we can talk about supply side uh, dynamics and supply side interventions, but uh, whether that's mass incarceration or whether that is um, uh, using prescription drug monitoring programs, it's still supply side with based on the theory that if we just simply reduce the supply, we can make the problem smaller, which isn't necessarily the case, and Really, one of the things that we need to begin talking about is moving to more of a demand side, asking ourselves, what is it about our, our culture, our society, um, that, that, for one, makes us believe that uh, there, there should be a pill for everything? Um, and then what is that constant tension that we somehow live in, that sense of either psychological or physical pain uh, that we, we uh, seek relief from? Where does that come from? And, and if we can start to address that at a, at a very fundamental, uh, almost existential level, then I think that we can start to make a, a, an impact on the demand end of this. Amen, Jeff. And I agree with that, too. Right. And I think of it like on a corner, you can have a Wendy's, a Taco Bell, a Mrs. Winner's, and a Chick-fil-A, right? And if you eat that every day, it might not be good for you, right? The fast food, French fries might not be good for you. So, But if the Taco Bell goes away, you're still going to have other choices. So you have to educate people around wellness, around what's good for you. How do you, how do you actually do things and behave, have your behaviors match um, some, you know, a, a wellness regimen? So All right. Let me, let me um, Teresa, let me go to you on this. Uh, Beth Macy, uh, who's one of our favorite authors on uh, Political Rewind, uh, of course, wrote the book, book uh, Dope Sick, which we uh, talked to her about in great detail when it was first published. And, of course, she talks about how the scourge of opioids has devastated entire communities in West Virginia uh, and in, in parts of Appalachian South. That's where she tends to focus. And so I'm curious about something. Um we don't we don't see that kind of broad devastation of a community, at least that I'm aware of here, the way we do in a small town, a rural community, whatever. But I'm curious. Tell me about since you serve as students at Kennesaw State. I am not suggesting Kennesaw State is a hotbed of abuse. <laughs> it's just you're here. You work at Kennesaw State. So tell us a bit about the kind of issues, how prevalent are opioids, heroin, other addictive painkillers in, in the Kennesaw State community, and how do you deal with it? Well, in the community itself, we see very few students presenting um, dependent on substances of of an opiate nature, Uh, typically because they can't always maintain uh, a lifestyle of academic rigor at the same time that they are dependent on a substance. Um, However, from the recovery standpoint, we have seen an increase of students coming into college in recovery from from opiates. And so um, we have about 68% (coughs) of our student population is now in recovery from opiate dependence. Wait, 68%? Of our students in our program. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Not enough. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Thank so, you. So when you look at that number um, compared to about 4% when we first started our program 11 years ago. Uh, the other thing to note, I think that, you know, when we talk about numbers in decimated communities, the recovery community um, is suffering tremendous loss, right? So we're, we're in Cobb County specifically. The numbers of deaths in Cobb County are tremendous. And then the numbers of deaths for individual families and recovery communities. I mean, it's stunning, the numbers. Uh, it, in the past couple of years, I know that several students in our program in recovery have lost more than 20 friends to overdose. And that, that's, that's a huge point. I have, we have a lot of young people working for us. All of them are in recovery. They've all lost people. They've all lost friends. We, we see it you know, again and again that there are people who have had a setback in their recovery and they end up overdosing and dying. Neil, describe a setback because I, I have a sister who works as a prosecutor up in Ohio and she's told me stories of people coming out of recovery and on that very day getting a call from someone who was their dealer or supplier because there's such aggressiveness in this world. But but what happens to someone who's made a real run at recovery and then and then doesn't make it. Yeah. What are the great question? They, it's it's all about the brain. It's all about the feedback loop in our brains, and we could talk about. In fact, we probably should be talking about brain science and how how opiates are putting. Uh, it's like, as, as Teresa often says, it's turbo. It's a drug on turbocharge where the way it makes you feel, the way it makes you crave when you're not using, your tolerance level goes way up, but you're still not, just because you're not using that the drug doesn't mean that your brain has healed yet. It takes time. And if we had brain slides out, I could show you what a brain that is 30 days from the last use and a year from the last use, what that looks like, and it's healing. It's starting to heal. The dopamine, the good, the good neurotransmitters are starting to come back, and it's it, that's a whole other conversation. But what's really important to recognize is that recovery takes time. That when you look at people, it takes if someone comes out of treatment, let's say they've been abstinent for a, a you know ninety days a year even, it's still going to take time because it's such a complicated interaction between uh, all of the, the, the uh, Austin's looking at me like, say it, say it, all, all of the inner workings of the brain. So it's just not um, something that you, you quit and you can stay quit automatically. You have Serious cravings. You it's have. It's not just a matter of willpower, is what I hear no, you say. No, no, yeah. no. Cassandra, yeah. you're nodding throughout yeah. everything Neil is saying. <laughs> you know, Neil and I have known each other a very long time. And so we, we definitely, I mean, that is absolutely correct. Everything she's saying is, you know, if, if addiction was a matter of willpower, we wouldn't be in an opioid crisis and we sure. wouldn't have a, a country that's suffering from multiple uh, people with addiction issues around substance use disorder, which is more than just than opioids. A, a reminder that alcohol is still number one. That's right. Yeah. Uh, drug that people die from and abuse. Uh, but, but absolutely, I mean, I think what the effects are on the brain and then the biopsychosocial effects of, of addiction and what all that plays into makes it very difficult for someone. But people do recover, but it does take time. It does take support. It does take people not being stigmatizing, using negative language, and just really giving the person a chance to recover. Those are very important factors. Cassandra, do you have a map that shows us across the state of Georgia where we see addiction as being the greatest problem? Yeah, the Department of Public Health uh, does have a surveillance uh, report, um, and they do have some hotspot maps. What are they, hotspots? Um, off the top of my head, I, I can't tell you because I kind of we look at it every month. Uh, but definitely, you know, Cobb County, the metro, the whole metro area. Well, County in the southeast. Yeah, that population density is a real factor, but you do have some rural areas that have some little spots that pop up. North, I, North Georgia, which is essentially southern Appalachia, yeah, um, is, is, is been... Um, Austin, I, I know your expertise is in this science part of this, right? <laughs> and so build on what Neil had to say. I mean, what, again, for average people just learning about this, what is the, the physical, the physiology, the science behind it that makes it so hard to overcome and understand? Certainly. Well, with, with opioids in particular, it's, it's important to keep in mind that if any, in, it, it closely mimics um, natural substances that your body makes. So Anybody that takes opioids for a long period of time may end up uh, physically dependent on them. Um, and then you have kind of a subset of that, which I would classify as, as addiction. Um, but what happens is the, 
the the basal functions, so the the more primordial parts of your brain that regulate things like eating, sleeping, your sex drive, uh, what happens is that part gets tangled into uh, your use of the substance. So what essentially happens is that your desire for a substance becomes uh, basically uh, uh, instinctual, almost uh, uh, primal. All right, I got to get to a break. Um, he does this all the time. We're, t- <laughs> we're talking about opioids in the state of Georgia. When we get back, Cassandra, you provided us some startling statistics about the uh, crisis here in Georgia. I want to go over those briefly. But then I want to look at what efforts are being made by state, local, and federal government to deal with this crisis. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Now's the time to do your part to make GPB Stealth Drive a success, so you'll continue to hear more programming and less fundraising this spring. Remember, right now on GPB, you're getting all the news coverage, every story, every segment. And that's especially important in times like these. GPB listeners have been letting us know how much they appreciate this innovative, less disruptive approach and saying they hope it works. We do, too. But that can only happen when you help raise the funds that come in during a traditional on-air campaign. So step up with your support of the programs you rely on and less fundraising on the air. And the best way to do that is to join us as a GPB sustainer. Your support continues automatically month after month. You never have to remember when it's time to renew and the amount is up to you. Give online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thanks. I'm getting trolled. Cassandra Price, you are the Director of Addictive Diseases at the Department of Behavioral Health and Development Disabilities. That's a state agency. Yes. You provided us with some statistics. I want to just go through a few of them with you. Um, Just read them off, and then we'll talk about the ones that jump out at you and the rest of the panel. Um, We already said there's been a 245% increase in the the seven years from 2010 to 2017. We, We know now that in 2013, illicit opioids such as heroin and fentanyl uh, really were responsible for the the spike. But you then say in 2016 in Georgia, overdose deaths involving fentanyl, 344 of them surpassed the number of deaths from heroin. And uh, you say from 2016 to 2017, there was a 17 percent increase in heroin-involved overdose deaths and a 53 percent increase in fentanyl-involved overdoses. Demographically, males aged 25 to 34 died more from overdoses than any other age category and were almost three times more likely to die from opioid-involved overdose than females, and that whites were 4.2% more likely to die, or 4.2 times more likely to die from an opioid-involved overdose, two and a half times more likely to visit an ED, an emergency room, for an, in, in an opioid-involved overdose, and four-plus times more likely to visit an, an emergency medical unit for a heroin-involved overdose than black people. So right away, Cassandra, those last figures stand out. We have for decades, I think, had this stereotypical notion of heroin as being a function of people living in impoverished inner-city neighborhoods. And if that was ever true, and I'm not sure it was, it sure isn't now. Well, I mean, absolutely. I think that you're seeing these overdose deaths and the people presenting in EDs, uh, primarily uh, individuals who are white. But I, but I will say that um, heroin is still being abused in the African-American communities. Right. They may not just be showing up in these stats, but I don't want us to ever take our eye off the ball that everyone is, is, is uh, affected by this. So the stats may say one thing of people who are, who are overdosing or, or having these uh, ED visits, but uh, I think it's just important to keep our eyes on that everyone is affected. And we like to think about it in terms of not not just the, those kinds of numbers, but also the response to this crisis. The response in the 80s and was a lot different. It was criminal. Now it's compassion. Well, I want to talk about, I'm glad you mentioned that. Just this past week, the Marietta Police Department mm-hmm. withdrew from the drug task force yep. in uh, Cobb County and, and a couple of counties beyond that. And the chief up there said he believes that they should focus their efforts on uh, treatment and uh, prevention. Prevention. Mm-hmm. That is a stunning 
development, and I guess it's part of a trend that's going on in many law enforcement agencies around the country, yes? It is, and Chief Flynn should be commended, and that's exactly where we need to be. What he said was, or what he said in the AJC was, that it's we should treat this as a public health crisis, not a public safety crisis. And I think that's right. It's got to be treated like a public health crisis. I think his quote crisis. was, we can't arrest our way out of this. And we can't. Is the state on board with that at this oh, point, abs- Cassandra? absolutely. I mean, okay. cr- criminalization of people who are suffering from uh, opioid use disorder or substance use disorder is is just it you don't solve anything and we're not saving lives and helping people uh, get back to their families and recovery so i'm assuming that some of what nathan deal's uh, criminal justice reforms did was in fact not decriminalize but change the penalties uh, in some cases, for people who've been arrested and convicted of drug crimes. Of various Absolutely. Sorts. The increase of, of drug courts uh, and those other options to help people uh, become, you know, uh, involved in those as an option instead of going to prison was a was a great uh, addition to our system. Well, I wanted to follow up on that, Sandra, and for everybody. So this was a big topic for Governor Deal. He was passionate and persistent about it, and, and I think got a lot of things done. Now, is that momentum continuing? Do you have any concerns about, you know, do all of you have concerns, I, or do you think that the state has started to figure it out? I, I think that momentum related to drug courts has continued. I work closely with the Council of Accountability Court Judges, um, and we actually have a, a partnership where we have liaisons working with the judges uh, and our treatment providers to help people. We fund a certain number of providers to do um, addiction treatment for those individuals that are in the court. Um, so there's some partnerships there. Um, so I really see that momentum continuing. I want to say it's a little, it's, it seems a little different if you look at the Deal administration, which he was a huge fan of our community and did a lot, I think, in terms of decriminalization and that, that work. But Governor Kemp had 22 health care bills this session. If we believe that addiction is a preventable, treatable, chronic health condition, that's where it's going to be solved, not in the criminal justice system. So I actually am excited that I think this the health care bill, Senate Bill 106, for which we testified, I think it's a good start. I think ha- saying, well, we're going to have more. What did that more- bill do? I mean, could you be- tell our Well, listeners? all it is is a start to say we're going to start looking at the waiver, the, the different types of waivers that can be. Um, Medicaid waivers. Right, right, the Medicaid waivers that can be looked at. It, it's a great. So that Medicaid money could be used to attack this problem. Correct. Okay. If if advocates like us, I believe, are invited to the table to say that we need we need more services because what you're seeing in other states that have expanded Medicaid, you're seeing uh, more treatment capacity, and that's a good thing. So I think that's one way to do it. But I just think if we if we think about we don't want to criminalize this stuff anymore, then maybe we don't need more drug courts. We need more treatment services because you shouldn't have to get arrested to get well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and you and you made a good point. I you, we were talking about West Virginia earlier, in particular um, places like Huntington, West Virginia, mm-hmm. which have been the hardest hit. Um, well, and actually, if you look at some of the innovations that are coming out of, of, of Marshall University, uh, the community-based outreach programs, that uh, that type of response where you have a um, a collaborative effort between law enforcement, uh, local uh, politicians, the recovery community, faith-based leaders, um, all addressing this problem on the same page and doing doing effective ground level work at the individual level. Um, I, and I think that that's going to really turn. Well, when you say that someone shouldn't have to be arrested to recover. So we know sort of that path, what, what happens uh, to people and their opportunity. But what 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 is if someone's not arrested? What works? What should what should happen? Uh, treatment capacity, early intervention. Yep. One of the things we do in our system, I think our whole system needs to be blown up, our treatment delivery system. We wait until someone is in the equivalent of a diabetic coma before we treat them. We wait until they're they're so acute in their illness before we can get in the door of services many times. We should be doing earlier intervention. We should be doing screenings. We screen people for depression. We screen people for hearing. Why aren't we screening everyone for a substance use disorder that comes into care? You know, how much do you drink? How much do you, how many drugs do you use? Once you bring that stuff to people's attention and they realize it's harmful, they'll back off on their own. So I want to go back uh, for a couple minutes here to talking about how the state, how the federal government are trying to address this crisis. And, uh, you know, Neil, you just mentioned a way in which, uh, assuming that Governor Kemp uses the Medicaid waivers in the way that we, you hope he does in terms of addiction (laughs) and recovery, uh, that's certainly a a step in the right direction. But I want to talk, if I may, Teresa, about what 
from my uninformed point of view, appears to be an odd step in the other direction. The legislature this session voted to take away the ability of the Georgia Composite Medical Board to discipline doctors who fail to register for an opioid prescription database. So do, do, are you all familiar with any? You may or may not be familiar with this. Are, are, are you familiar with it? They this database was set up specifically to start tracking whether doctors were overprescribing, and now the legislature uh, has taken away their power to do this. And I, I find that to be a step in the direction that we're not talking about here. Anybody want to comment on that? We were a little confused by that as yeah. well. That got passed, but I think what we so we went and met with one of the authors of the the bill and. Just want to say that I think it's yet to be seen. A lot of the devil is in the details of how it gets regulated beyond this. And I think I, the intention was never to hold doctors less accountable. It was to make it less cumbersome and bureaucratic, I believe. At least that's what we're being told. So we okay. will watch it. I, right. I just want you to know that we we were thrilled that this that they were at least willing to talk to us to say, hey, we you cannot go backwards. Why why do we even think about that? Cassandra? Well, I mean, that's uh, regulated at the Department of Public Health. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I really wasn't intimately involved. Uh, I do trust my partner in crime <laughs> over here, uh, Neil, that if that's that's kind of what the feedback is, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. Right. Um, and we are also really strong partners with the Department of Public Health, and so we'll be monitoring that. And I think it's also important to note that the people at this table and many other people um, were really connected with each other. So if we don't know the answer to these questions that we are advocating and speaking, uh, that's something really pretty unique about the recovery community it's bipartisan we are you know we'll cross lines we'll yep. we'll jump over lines if we need to um, yep. to help each other and support this these efforts yep. um all right so thank you for that we'll look to see how that plays out uh, in the year ahead um, so let me let me ask a, a, a ask another question we now have a federal law proposed by buddy Carter uh, first district uh, congressman down there on the coast that was that President Trump signed late last fall. Uh, I don't remember the name of the, 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 the that, that buddy gave to the statute to the law, but it apparent it, it pre- presumes to be a first step toward the federal government uh, expanding its powers to really look at the opioid crisis. Anybody want to weigh in on that? No. All right. <laughs> I mean- you know, I think that, yeah, on, I, on that particular bill, I, I don't. I, yeah, okay, sorry. that's fine. Um, but, but what about the larger issue of what, what Georgia needs from the federal government? In other words, you know, I, I'm sure that most of the battles here are really about money in the end, right? And convincing people how to spend money better or in a way that isn't based on... It being too late, as, yeah. as you pointed out. And, and, you know, it always is a dollar late, you know, or, or what is that? Day late. Day late, dollar short. short. I can't get the, the phrase right. But I will say that we've been very fortunate that we got the state targeted response grant first. So it was about $12 million that came to Georgia. And then we've had a follow-up grant of the state opioid response grant of $20 million that came through HHS and SAMHSA. And so those are federal grants that expand treatment prevention and recovery for the state of Georgia. Uh, some of the things we've done is expand medication-assisted treatment programs, recovery support programs. We've put peers in the EDs and emergency rooms where people have overdosed to do coaching. We've done prevention campaigns where you've got a media campaign and we're going to have people in recovery, long-term recovery, on billboards to reduce stigma. Uh, that's going through the council. Uh, we uh, have uh, been putting out naloxone. We've had uh, the total number, uh, I think that's very important, uh, self-reported overdose refer, uh, uh, reversals in Georgia was 1,292. So those are people that, that got reversed because of medications we have on the street. Let me let me just briefly, and, and I apologize for throwing out a question uh, to you all about the federal law, but here's what President Trump signed <coughs> into law back on October 24th, 2018. A bill that expands recovery centers, the Department of Health and Human Services will oversee a grant program to expand comprehensive recovery centers around the country. It will lift treatment restrictions. Federal officials for a long time wanted to make it easier for doctors to prescribe certain drugs drugs which help people wean off yeah. opioid addiction and now the law uh, lifts restrictions on some of those efforts it it uh, gives money to new pillar p- painkiller research 
and it allows for changes in several Medicare and Medicaid regulations, which would expand Medicare coverage for opioid treatment, increase screenings for opioid use disorder, and a variety of other things. So that was Buddy Carter's bill, and it appears to address a few of the issues that you all have talked about today. I think some of the responses have been really smart. You know, in this legislature here in Georgia, they passed the syringe exchange program Mm, this year. That startled me. (laughs) Well, it did. I mean, let's face it. Governor Kemp is a very conservative guy. And when, you know, when we saw him pass needle exchange regulation, I thought, wow. Well, and it's so effective. It's harm reduction. Well, explain what it is. Let's start there and explain why it's so effective, Teresa. I mean, why don't you? Well, it's it's safe. Um, needle exchange um, prevents disease spreading. Um, it also saves lives. Um, I, you know, the, the uh, conversation in community is I would rather have somebody in a location where they're injecting and if they overdose that they can be ro- revived and also referred to treatment if it's something that they need. Um, so it's, it's a safer harm reduction and um, death reduction as well. So it allows harm reduction uh, nonprofits to hand out needles to people who are uh, using needles to inject their drugs. And what it does is it'll what we've shown in the across the country is there's a less transmission of uh, communicable diseases, including HIV, hepatitis. It's just it's a smart way to keep people alive. We always we, we've been saying that at the legislature for a long time, that if you can keep people alive and well, they have a chance of getting into recovery. And, and I would add, you know, hepatitis C is going to be one of the things we're going to see explode. We already are seeing increased rates of hepatitis C, which is transmitted uh, primarily through um, the injection of, of drugs such as heroin. Um, and we have some efforts at the state to start addressing that because there's a cure now for hepatitis C. It's not cheap, but it's out there. And so we're supporting even minimally with the dollars that we have for people to get to get better from Hep C, and so I think that's something to keep our eyes on. What what kinds of things are lingering out there that you would like to see the state? Kevin Riley, that is such a good question, <laughs> and let's use it as a tease for the next segment of Political Rewind right, we'll because we have got to get our last break of the show out of the way. We'll do that right now and come back and answer Kevin Riley's question: What's lingering out there that needs to be addressed? We'll be right back. <laughs> Now's the time to help GPB Stealth Drive gain momentum. We're just over halfway there for the number of days of this campaign, but we've not yet reached the halfway mark for the support it takes to sustain the programs you enjoy. If we haven't heard from you yet, please take a moment right now to do your part. Give online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. That's gpb.org or 800-222-4788, and thanks. On the next Fresh Air, Erin Lee Carr, her new memoir is about her relationship with her late father, David Carr, a New York Times media columnist who had a large and devoted following. He was addicted to crack when she was born and got sober soon after. He was both father and mentor to Erin. She's now a documentary filmmaker. Her new film premieres on HBO Friday. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back. Kevin Riley, uh, you have a question for our panel on opioid addiction. I was just going to ask each person to say, all right, as we've talked about what the state's doing, what the federal government's doing, if each of you could make a suggestion of, you know, something you would like to see happen that hasn't, that would make a big difference or or would matter greatly. So whoever wants to start. So I'll start. I think if we if we visualize a continuum of care that begins with prevention and harm reduction, moves through treatment, uh, post-treatment supports, and uh, what we would call recovery capitalization, um, on the harm reduction end, if we if we look at things like safe injection sites, uh, really getting widespread uh, naloxone distribution so that every business, handbag, briefcase, and bathroom has um, a a kit. Uh, accessible to the general public, um, I think that that's, that would make a big dent. Um, I also this think... This is Teresa from Teresa Johnson. State. Yeah, I think funding for research um, and research in recovery, right? So understanding how communities and individuals are sustaining recovery and um, staying healthy. And so how do we continue to take that information and then do what we call recovery-informed prevention? How do we help the other side of the continuum of care? Taking the experience of people who have, again, sustained recovery and then helping those who um, are in the prevention side. Yeah, I, I, I totally... This 
Mrs. Neal, I, I totally agree with the prevention piece that we don't have enough of that here in Georgia. And we've done a lot of work with young people in high schools, and they just want to know the truth. And I think if we talk honestly and help have have them uh, and help them to have honest conversations about their use and about some of the dangers of this stuff. They really do want to know, but not in a blaming, shaming way, in a more like, you know, what what is it about your life that you're using these alcohol and drugs and how can we help support you to, to get through high school? But I think the other thing that we want, there was House Bill 514 that established a mental health commission this past year. And one of the, and initially, people in recovery were on that commission, were listed on that commission, and we were taken off. And I think that we have to be at every table. People in recovery bring something to the table, and the conversation's different when we're around, because it's a lot less easy to say, well, you people are like this, and you they do that, and you're expensive. So we want a spot on that commission. We're going to be advocating for that so that, and I think families, a family member needs to be on that, someone who's been through that and has either helped their loved one get better or has lost that loved one and knows what it takes and knows that pain. So those are a couple of concrete things. Cassandra? So I'm going to say ditto to all of those because like they're <laughs> all great ideas. But I think one thing that um, I really want to think outside of the box for our continuum of care, our, our family uh, treatment recovery supports. And so we don't treat family units. We have a really robust system for, for women uh, and, the, and their children, um, but we don't treat family units. Mm-hmm. And they all need to get well. They all need the support. Many times both both partners are using and so they want to stay together. And so I just think that we need to explore those options uh, to have a family system. Thank you for all those suggestions. I want to ask a question uh, with the time we have remaining about whether or not uh, the, the efforts to get doctors to, I'm sorry, the efforts, yeah, first to get doctors to stop overprescribing. But, but second, there's a big new front legal front that has developed. Georgia is one of, I think, some 29, if not more states, Attorney General Chris Carr, now suing uh, manufacturers of opioid painkillers, saying that they oversold the product, they marketed it in a way that it appeared not only safe, but actually advantageous to be taking uh, the drugs. So how are the efforts going, whether it's here in Georgia or across the country, to to uh, curtail the activities of the manufacturers and to stop doctors from over over prescribing. Well, this is Cassandra. I, I think I've got some uh, stats here. I'm sorry, did I jump? Okay. That's all right. Do it. Okay. Let's. We... So, so, so some important stats here. I think that are important. In the first quarter, there were about two million two hundred prescriptions dispensed, and so now we're down to one point eight. And then in 2017, um, of the eight million opioid prescriptions, two point one patients in Georgia. So we've seen some some decreases in the dispensing rate uh, across uh, prescribing of, of doctors, and I think that's wonderful. We want to see that happen. However. There is a cost to that because what happens is those illicit, um, fake uh, opioids get out there, cut with fentanyl, and then we have people that are using heroin. So there's kind of a cost yeah. for for cleaning up one end and not really thinking a, kind of from a from a whole system approach. And Austin, what about these manufacturers who have made a fortune on uh, on these drugs? Well, it's uh, it's impossible to really talk about it without talking about the way we prescribe uh, medication in this country and the direct to consumer model, uh, which is problematic. And the the other end of it is that uh, so some of some of the blowback that we're seeing from the restriction in um, in prescribing is uh, chronic pain patients being taken off of medication that they need. Um, and so we have to be very careful about unintended consequences. Now, the 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 industry should certainly be held accountable for questionable uh, and malicious practices. Uh, but I would look to the tobacco uh, lawsuits of the of the 90s and I would say, you know, is this money going to go to build sidewalks uh, or is it going to go to the people and victims of this uh, practice and, and into the, uh, the, the the treatment sphere? All right. I appreciate that. Um, with the time we have remaining, how may, which of you, maybe all of you, <laughs> have phone numbers, websites? Let's talk about, I know, Neil, that you do a big outreach effort to get people to connect with you. First of all, make us more aware of what you actually are doing in sure. your agency and then how people can reach you. Sure. A couple of things that we do that, that I think really help are we train people in recovery to be peer support recovery coaches. And so we have 
coaches in hospitals in Northeast Georgia Health System. We have um, one of the main things that we got funded from the department a, couple, a year and a half ago was our uh, peer support warm line. So we have a phone number that you can call if you're struggling, if you're a family member is struggling from 830 in the morning until 11 at night. And the number is 1-844-326-5400. And we'll tweet that out and post it right. on our Facebook page. We'll have it on our social media and someone platforms. someone in recovery is answering the line. And you can just talk to that person. We call it radical listening. We listen with <laughs> care and compassion and just want to meet you where you are and, and hear about what you want to do and how we can support you. Cassandra, what about the state? The state has, uh, we have the Georgia Crisis and Access Line, and um, I am looking it up because my brain is so full of numbers that it... Yep. D- don't worry about it, because again, as yep. long as we know it, we will put it out on Absolute, our social media platforms. Absolutely. So we have you don't a, have to know everything to be on this I'm show. I'm telling you. Believe me, I'm the number one example <laughs> like of it. that. It's, it's a lot of pressure, but we have the, the Georgia Crisis and Access Line, so people who are experienced uh, urgent or emergent uh, psychiatric or substance use disorder crisis can call and speak to a clinician and get connected to services. We also have our DBHD website where we have you know, a list of providers and sites. Uh, and we also have, of course, my office and my email. And I get emails at all time of the evenings and days of people looking for treatment. We connect them to my little bitty team and we try to help people get connected as much as we can. Can the community interact with you at Kennesaw State or is your service <laughs> primarily for students? We are a public university. <laughs> uh, so we do a lot of collaboration in the community. Um, you can reach us at recovery at kennesaw.edu. Uh, and we do provide um, resources and outreach uh, nationally and locally uh, for other universities. Uh, we were a fundamental uh, startup for the Association for Recovery in Higher Education. So when we started our program 11 years ago, we were the fourth in the country. Today, we have over 100 universities wow. that are supporting recovery, and we can certainly help with that. Kevin? <laughs> I know they're not going to call you with addiction problems. <laughs> no, I just I, I just think it's important, you know, for people who are listening, and, and because this is, as, as our guests have pointed out, that this is a crisis that crosses so many lines, and uh, there probably are people out there listening who are looking for some help, and they need to know there's lots of places to find it, and if they just call one of these people, they'll be able to talk to them, or and, and as you said, we'll tweet out the numbers. Yeah, we'll have it all in our social media platforms. Um We're about out of time, so I, first of all, want to thank you, Neil Campbell, of the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, uh, Cassandra Price, Director of the Addictive Disease Unit at the Department of uh, Behavioral Health and and Developmental Disabilities, and Austin Brown and Teresa Johnston, both of you from the KSU Center for Young Adult Addiction and Recovery. And Kevin Riley, it's always great to have you as a partner on these programs uh, because you ask some of the questions that just don't even occur to me to ask. That's why you're the editor <laughs> of the paper, great. Great and I'm nothing here. but a host at Georgia Public Radio. And we're working hard to make sure these stories get told. As I know our panel knows, we have done done a lot yes, with yeah. that. And it, we this won't be solved till we all understand it better. All right. Yes. I want to take one moment to uh, tell you about some news that really hit those of us at political who work on political rewind have worked on it for five years now uh, in such a positive way this morning. Uh, National Public Radio NPR puts out data on the uh, on podcasts on listeners on radio stations and uh, they tell us how many people are either listening to our radio shows, are downloading and subscribing to our podcast. Today, we just got a report from NPR, which tells us this. Thanks to many of you out there, Political Rewind is in the top 20 podcasts in the country uh, for downloads and listeners from October 2018 through March 2019 across 202 NPR stations. We are in the top 20 of your listening preference. That is thrilling to us, and we owe it all to those of you who believe in Political Rewind and like what we're doing. So thank you. Keep listening to our show and to our podcast. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back tomorrow. Stacey Abrams will be on the agenda at 2 o'clock. Bye-bye.